0: One week ago, people in Turkey and northern Syria were having an ordinary night. They came home from work and shared meals with their families. Parents put their children to bed. In the Syrian town of Jinderis, Zakaria Tabah cuddled his youngest boy, Abdelhadi, who was two.
1: I put him in my arms and slept with him. He
0: lay Abdelhadi on the little boy's bed and then slipped out to join his wife in their bedroom.
1: I was
0: sleeping beside my wife. I woke up. Uh, my wife was covered with rubble, ruins. Tabah's wife was dead beside him, killed by chunks of their ceiling that fell on the couple's bed. Their home had partially collapsed after an earthquake hit in the very early morning hours of February 6th. Tabah ran to his children's room and pulled out five-year-old Abdul Wahab alive, but he found two-year-old Abdul Hadi motionless under the debris of a collapsed wall. He had died where he slept. I don't know how I got out. God must have pulled me out, Tabakh said. Outside their home, similar scenes were unfolding. Neighbors in nightdresses running through the rain in the darkness, calling for relatives in the rubble of collapsed homes. There was another strong quake and many aftershocks. Tabach says few came to mourn with him and his surviving five-year-old son.
1: People are so
0: busy with their own cases, so nobody is uh, have the time to help the others. Yeah, All of them are injured, all of them have deaths. Consider this. One week after two major earthquakes devastated parts of Turkey and Syria, the death toll is in the tens of thousands and still climbing. One of our correspondents in the region asks, how can people even start to recover? From NPR, I'm Ari Shapiro. It's Monday, February 13th. Support for NPR and the following message come from Capital One, the 2023 lead sponsor of NPR Music. Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. It's Consider This from NPR. A week ago, when southern Turkey and northern Syria were hit by two massive earthquakes one after another... NPR's Ruth Sherlock was close by in Lebanon. Ruth reached the region quickly and has been there ever since, reporting on the devastation, the search and rescue efforts, and people's efforts to come to grips with what has happened. Ruth is now in Gaziantep, Turkey, and joins us to talk about everything she's seen in the last week. Hi, Ruth. Hi. One of the first places you reported from was the Turkish city of Antakya. Can you describe what it was like just getting into the town?
1: Right, well, we were driving in as these ambulances were streaming out, there sirens wailing, and as we got closer and closer, we started to see the devastation. There was buildings collapsed. I mean, I even saw one of the hospitals of the city, like, l- tilted on its side, crumbling. And, you know, there were just people combing the rubble, some digging with their bare hands, with shovels, And as we got close into the center, I realized why. The scale of the devastation here are it's like Armageddon. You know, I don't usually exaggerate, but I think that's an appropriate description for this place. I I know this area very well, having reported here for for years, close to the border with Syria. There's thousands of Syrian refugees here, and I couldn't recognize a single street. We met one woman trying to save her son. Pamidi Mansurolu is in front of a half-collapsed building. She says her son, 42-year-old Sadat, is trapped inside. When she couldn't reach him on the phone the morning of the earthquake, she and her other son Ayham ran over to his home there.
0: they found
1: him. Ayham, who found him? They found him. Ayham
0: found him. He found him.
1: God, how did she find him? His brother dug with his hands to find him. She says they found him trapped on what was the fourth floor of the building that has pancaked in on itself, and he's still alive. I'm with Erin O'Brien, a freelance journalist here for The Economist, who helps me translate. (laughs) Yesterday morning, she said, could you move your foot if you can hear me? And he moved it. Wow. Rescuers and volunteers tried to get him out, but didn't have the right equipment. Now, more than 36 hours later, men have come with an excavator to try to free him. Chunks of concrete are being bashed away near where Sadat is, and his mother is clearly terrified, but all she can do is watch. Every time the bulldozer gets close to where her son is, she winces in pain, watching and like begging them to go gently and go carefully. But the reality is that to try to reach him, they have to remove this thick layer of concrete. But in doing that, they might well crush him. What are you doing? She shouts hands to her head. digging, they're gonna go and climb into the space where they think he might be. It's incredibly dangerous because the whole building could collapse even on top of the rescue workers. They're telling everybody to be silent. Try to hear for signs of life at this point. They might have found him. But if that's the case, it's not good news. They've turned away and they're walking back. Look like they're gonna to talk to the mother now. The mother's fallen to her knees, weeping, sobbing. So this, this story of Hamid Mansouroulu is just one among thousands. You know, that's the thing. Wherever we go, the moment you step outside, you meet people with these kind of tragic situations across southern Turkey and in Syria. They're just all living the same nightmare.
0: And you cross that border from Turkey into Syria, a border that is mostly shuttered because of the civil war. Tell us about that.
1: That's right. So we went inside on Friday and we saw, you know, similar scenes of destruction to what we'd seen in Turkey. But the difference here is that there is no help. So we didn't hear any ambulances because there were hardly any. We didn't really see much of the heavy machinery that we'd, see, we'd seen in Turkey being used to try to excavate these destroyed buildings. Uh, In the town of Jinderis, on this one street with collapsed homes on either side, the mayor of the town, Mohamed Hafar, had this question. From the first day you where is, where is the world? where's the words? Why, Why, Why we are alone? Why we are alone?
0: All people are alone. If you come in the evening, you will see people are gathering in the streets and making fires in the streets. Five days from the catastrophe and there is no tents, no helps, no aids.
1: He's saying they have 3,900 families that have nowhere to shelter. And we saw that ourselves. People were spending their nights, and I should say it's freezing here, sitting on the top of the debris of what was their home, and they have nowhere to go.
0: Why isn't any help at all reaching them? Is it just because of the war?
1: It's very complicated and it involves politics, really. The thing is, the Syrian regime says it's a violation of its sovereignty to bring aid across the border from Turkey because these areas are controlled by opposition rebels. And the United Nations has been able to send aid through one border crossing from Turkey. But The permission to do that comes up regularly uh, at a vote at the UN Security Council. And after this earthquake, the roads from the UN distribution center to this one border crossing, Babelhauer, were damaged. And so even though there were other routes from Turkey into Syria where aid could have come, none did because they felt they couldn't use them. And there's, you know, hundreds of tons of aid that has poured into Turkey from all over the world and you see that there, there's roads gridlocked with convoys carrying all sorts of materials and when we crossed at one of the borders into Syria it was completely empty and I understood why but it still felt very eerie. Um, I should say some aid is now trickling in but the UN aid chief Martin Griffiths did say yesterday that by being so slow the UN failed the people of northwest Syria.
0: After you left Syria, you went back to Turkey to keep reporting from there and traveled to a region near the southern Turkish city of Islahia. Tell us what you saw there.
1: Yeah, we drove out uh, into the countryside and we stopped at this small village. And given everything that we've been reporting this week, it was was quite strange. You know, the scenery was so beautiful and so idyllic, Ari. There were these green fields, snow-capped mountains, pomegranate trees, and birdsong everywhere. And that really contrasted so horribly with the situation of the Sonmez family who we met there. They used to live in these beautiful old stone homes, but they're not safe to go into at the moment, so they were sleeping in tents outside. And they told me they lost 11 members of their family in this earthquake. Two others are still under the rubble of one collapsed building in a nearby town that once had 24 apartments in it and is now completely flattened. Those two relatives are 65-year-old Sakina Demir and her daughter, 35-year-old Samra, and rescuers have been working on the building for days, but so far there's been no news of these two people. I asked the family if they think, you know, with so many buildings have collapsed across the whole of Turkey, if everyone is going to be able to even recover the bodies of their loved ones to try to have some kind of closure. Madina Sonmez, Sakina's sister, and Yasmin Arslan, her niece replied this. We feel so bad, so bad, so bad, so bad. Uh, Yasemin said, I've never felt this before in my life. I can't feel anything. So I can't even think about that. Our bodies are here, but we're gone. We're done. None of us are here. Because we're not, we can't feel it. It's too much to comprehend, really, isn't it? <laughs> it's a nightmare. <laughs> Lady with a thick red scarf. Certainly her pain is bigger than the world. We got into a car and went with them to the nearby town of Islahia, where that destroyed building is they rescuers had this 250 ton winch trying to pull the building apart and the family along with dozens of others were there watching on this ledge uh, this kind of grim sad terrible viewing deck Um, lots of the relatives of the family that we met had been there for days they were sleeping in cars burning fires to try to keep warm they hadn't changed their clothes in a week and they you know it's really interesting they still spoke about their loved ones in the present tense these two people but I think hope was fading. You know, it's been a week now since the earthquake and I think they know that the chances of them coming out alive are little, but nobody wants to admit that reality. I think partly because these people, they have to deal with the loss of their relatives, but also nobody knows how the economy will recover, what will happen in the country's politics. So as well as this great personal grief, they have to, they're living in this terrible uncertain situation.
0: You know, earthquakes this large would obviously have caused tremendous death under any circumstances. But there have also been questions over the last week about whether human decisions made this even worse. After this week reporting from the region, as you look ahead, what do you see as the biggest challenges going forward?
1: Well, like you said, you know, Ari, the quakes were huge. So it's always complicated to ascribe blame in these situations. But we are hearing examples of how part of the reasons that perhaps so many buildings collapsed was a question of governance you know in turkey we're hearing more and more about corruption in the permits for building during this country's ambitious growth period trying to fuel the economy and construction companies kind of trying to get around the rules that were put in place to protect from earthquakes so they've been finding ways to build buildings higher than they're allowed to and in syria you know it's the scene of war for more than a decade and Many people have been crying out for more attention to the situation and help for the millions of displaced people there. And so that situation was already desperate. Already the hospitals were run down. Already people were had lost so much from in the conflict. And the earthquakes, though, are just bigger than... Anyone could prepare for and cope with. One of the questions now is whether the world even has the infrastructure to respond to something like this. Well, there's a war in Ukraine, you know, hunger in East Africa, and all these other unresolved crises that are stacking up.
0: Ruth, thank you so much for your reporting.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for talking with me.
0: That's NPR's Ruth Sherlock in Gaziantep, Turkey, one week after a massive earthquake devastated large parts of southern Turkey and northern Syria. It's Consider This from NPR. I'm Ari Shapiro.